This is a wonderful day. There's a great spirit in the house this morning. I recognize him. He's the Holy Spirit. And he's come to make changes in us. Cause us to be transformed. To be molded into the shape and the image of his son Jesus. That's what God's all about. So this morning I greet you with uh, a New Testament greeting. And I say to you, he is risen. Your response is, he is risen indeed. So I say to you again, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Aren't you glad? Hallelujah. We are people of the resurrection. We're men and women, boys and girls, young people who are able to live because Jesus Christ died. But the good news is he rose from the dead. And that resurrection power uh, that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us as believers. That's an exciting thing to think about. We need to focus on that from time to time and realize how wonderful and special and glorious the resurrection is for us. Actually, the resurrection of Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. Uh, it's what our faith is built on. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Christ be not risen, then you're, you're, uh, you're still dead in your sins. Our preaching and our faith is futile, it's in vain. If Christ wasn't risen, then all of our loved ones who've died in Christ, died in the faith, there's no hope for them either. They're just dead and gone. But, verse 20 of that chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul said, but now is Christ risen from the dead. And because he's risen, our faith is not futile, our preaching is not futile, we can have forgiveness of sin. We can live an eternal life. Our loved ones have gone on in the Lord. We're going to see them again one of these days. There's going to be a great resurrection on that wonderful day, and uh, they're going to come out of the graves. We're going to meet them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We ought to be shouting right there, amen. Welcome to our, our uh, folks who are watching online, and uh, I know Michael has already extended a welcome to you, but let me add mine. Uh, we're so grateful that uh, we have this way to, to reach into your home, your place of business, wherever you're watching. You may not be watching live. You may be watching this on Monday or Tuesday or whenever, but, but thanks, for, thanks for being a part of this meeting today. I'd like to direct your attention to the book of Mark, the 16th chapter. As I begin this morning, a message entitled, A Resurrection Day Celebration. Let's celebrate Resurrection Day. Well, Pastor Mickey, it's not Easter yet. Nope, we've still got about a month to go uh, till Easter, but this is a season... Of, of reverence. This is a season of repentance. This is a season of renewal. This is a season when we're looking forward to Resurrection Day. We're looking forward to what Christ has done for us. We look back 2,000 years and uh, we are so grateful, but we get an opportunity to celebrate. And I believe we ought to be celebrating the resurrection every single day of our lives. So today we're going to be celebrating. Uh, his resurrection. Go with me to Mark 16, begin reading in verse number one. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and verse number three says, they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Who among us here? We're just a group of women, and we're not exceedingly strong or powerful. And so when we get there, who's going to roll the stone away? I mean, we, we bought the spices 
after Sabbath was concluded, and here we are on the next morning, bright and early, and they asked among themselves, what are we, we going to do about that big stone? And that was the question. These beautiful women, these precious women, were disciples of Jesus. They had come alone on Sunday, the first day of the week, following the Jewish Sabbath. This, this had been the longest Sabbath they could ever remember because Jesus was crucified and laid in a grave. Their hopes, their dreams were buried with him. They didn't expect to find a risen Savior. They came to anoint a dead man. They came to finish the work that had begun on Friday evening when his body was taken down from the tree and placed in the tomb. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone? They knew that there was a massive stone that had been set with the Roman seal over the, the grave. And uh, the seal dictated that anyone tampering with the grave would be punished by death. There's a piece of marble that was discovered in 1878. And it, on, on this piece of marble, it's, it's declared in, in, in Greek, the Nazareth Decree. <clears throat> and the Nazareth Decree that was etched into this piece of marble says something like this. It says that tampering with graves, robbing uh, graves of bodies or anything that's inside of a grave will be punishable by death under the order of the Roman Empire. So here we have a tomb that had never been used before. It was borrowed, as a matter of fact. Jesus only needed it for the weekend, and so he didn't stay in there very long. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? He said, I'm just going to borrow this tomb. I'm coming out of the tomb, baby. I'm alive forevermore. Revelation 1 and verse 18 says, he is the first and the last. He's the one who died for us, but is alive forever. I am he that liveth. Revelation 1.18, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death and Hades. Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus is alive and he holds the key? Amen. So, so the Romans then had, had uh, by, by the order of the Jewish uh, high council, they had put Jesus to death. Um, you've heard me preach before on the... Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the beating and the thorns and the, the hammer and the nails and the cross itself. Uh, perhaps in a couple of weeks when I preach on Palm Sunday, we'll bring some of those things into the message. But let me just suffice it to say that crucifixion is one of the most uh, brutal, excruciating ways that you could cause a man to die. It's one of the most horrific punishments imaginable. It's from the word crucifixion that we get our word excruciating if that tells you anything. Uh, the Romans did not, um, they did not f f start uh, crucifixions. That, that was done before the Romans became, came to, to power. But the Romans perfected crucifixion as a form of cruel torture, uh, intimidation, and punishment. Uh, the Roman law declared that only a man could be crucified. Women could not be crucified. Children could not be crucified. Only a man it also dictated that if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. However, the Romans were, were, uh, were so good at their craft that uh, they, had, they had polished it to, to, its, to just a very fine art. And so they actually crucified over a quarter of a million men, over 250,000 men during the Roman occupation of the land of Israel. Can you imagine? 
uh, maybe you've seen the movie Spartacus. It's put out a number of years ago. And in one of those scenes, I think it's one of the last scenes of the movie, uh, there's, you can look down the road and there are, there are crosses on, on the sides of the road as far as the eye could see. Anybody remember that movie? And that's just about the way it was. Uh, every tree in, in that barren uh, place was taken, I say every tree, almost every tree was taken to be used as a cross. In fact, and oftentimes, they wouldn't bother to even fashion a cross like the one you see behind me. They would just simply use a tree. They would nail a man to the tree, and he would stay there until he died. You see, my friend, no one ever came off the cross alive. Crucifixion was a form of death. And so you didn't, you know, go through crucifixion for a few hours, and then you got to go on with your life. It was always a, a punishment that led to death. And the scripture declares that, that there is a curse. Cursed is everyone that hangs upon the tree. There's a curse that goes with, with crucifixion. But Jesus, when he went to the cross, he, he, he chose that form of punishment so that the curse would be broken. And you and I don't have to live under that curse. We don't have to live under the law of sin and death anymore. We don't have to, we don't have to live under sickness and poverty and all the bondage of hell. We have been set free by the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus has paid the price for us at the, cro the cross of Calvary. Amen. So these ladies said, who is going to roll away this stone for us? They knew that there was a massive stone that had been set with a Roman seal, which dictated anyone tampering with this grave would be punished by death. They knew that there would be a Roman guard of four, at least four soldiers working in eight-hour shifts around the clock to watch the grave, lest anyone should try to steal the body. Their orders were simple. Here they were. Guard the tomb. If you fall asleep or leave your post, you'll be killed. <laughs> Guard the tomb. So those men guarded the tomb. It seems that the enemies of Jesus had more faith in a resurrection than his disciples. Although numerous times Jesus told his disciples that he was going to uh, die, but he would come back to life again. He would die, but he'd be raised again. He told him, in one, one instance, he said, like Jonah was in the fish's belly, I'll be in the earth for three days. So you see, Jesus just borrowed that grave for the weekend, and he gave it back when he was through with it. His burial was not a, was not a finality. It wasn't, it wasn't like our burial. It was someone else's burial. It was a temporary burial, but he was very, very dead. He did die for the sins of mankind. Now, there's a major religion, and uh, they teach that, that Jesus did not die on the cross. He, says, he simply swooned. He just, you know, just kind of passed out, and they, they took him down off the cross. And, and when they wrapped him and put those spices on him, and they put him in that cool tomb, all of that revived him, and he came back, uh, you know, and he was not really dead to begin with. But you see, these Roman executioners, they, they weren't novices, as I told you a moment ago. These men made their living by crucifying people. And by torturing them, and they, 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 they made it as painful and as humiliating as humanly possible. They stripped the, the, the man naked. You weren't wearing any clothes when they were whipping and beating you. You weren't wearing any clothes when you were carrying your own crossbar uh, up, up the, the road to the place of crucifixion. You weren't wearing any clothes when you, were, when you were suspended between heaven and earth, unable to cover yourself, unable to do anything except bear the shame and humiliation of all being able to see you in that particular place, in that particular time. The, the Roman executioners would beat a man with, 
with a cat of nine tails. It was a whip uh, that had, it had leather thongs coming out of it, or leather straps. And in those leather straps, there were balls of iron. In those leather straps, there were pieces of pottery that had been broken and sharded. So they were just as sharp as humanly possible. And they would beat a man with that whip and they would beat him with that whip and they would beat him with that whip on his back, on his buttocks, on his legs, on the back of his head, on his shoulders, everywhere that they could beat the man, they would beat the man. Now, Jewish law declared that you could only use a whip 39 stripes. You could only hit a person 39 times. Isn't that nice of them to put that disclaimer in there? However, the Romans weren't bound by that law and they could beat you as many times as they wanted to beat you. They would whip you, one executioner would whip you till he was tired. It's like, I'm tired, I gotta take a break. And he'd sit down, drink some water or something and the other guy would take his place. He was fresh, he'd jump in there and start whipping. It's a horrible thing to experience and to go through. But Jesus did it for you and I. He bore the shame. He bore the humiliation. He bore the extreme pain. And the most, most horrific thing of all is that he bore the sins of mankind. He took those sins in his own body to the tree. He took your, the ordinance that was against you, the list of sins, the litany of things that you had done and I had done and every human on the planet had ever done and will ever do. And he took those ordinances and Paul says he nailed them to the tree. So not only was Jesus' body nailed to that tree, but that list of sins and all the things we've ever done, all the things we will ever do, all the things that we've ever thought, Jesus bore them at Calvary for you and for I. And it is necessary, the Bible says it is necessary uh, for blood to be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So Jesus shed his blood, an innocent party, an innocent dying for the guilty. A pure dying for the impure. There's no fairness about that. There's nothing fair in that when you consider all, all of that sort of thing, justice and so forth. It's not right. No, it wasn't right. Jesus wasn't dying because he was an evil man. He wasn't dying because he was a criminal. He wasn't dying because of a sin in his life, but he did it for you and he did it for me. And that's why I'm so thankful. And that's why I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. Someone said, may say to you, well, how do you, how do you love Jesus? How can you love Jesus? I mean, after all, how can you love someone who you've not seen and you've not heard and you've not touched? Let me tell you something. When I read the Bible account of what Jesus did, when I read that he left the, heaven, the glories of heaven and he humbled himself and became obedient uh, to death, even the death of the cross, and he did so for me, I, it gives me a love, it gives me a, a, a passion, it gives me a hope, it gives me a joy to know that Jesus did that, all of that for me. Can you say amen? Amen. So on the third day, the stone was rolled away. The grave could not hold him. He conquered death, he conquered hell, he conquered the grave. And this is why we celebrate on the first day of the week, resurrection morning, he is risen. <laughs> he is risen indeed. Amen. Revelation 1, 1 and 18, let me just read it again. I am he that liveth and was dead. See, those Romans wouldn't have taken him off the cross had he not been dead. As a matter of fact, they were hastening the death of those criminals. We don't know how many were hanging out there beside Jesus at that particular time. We always think of it being three men, one on his left and one on his right, he in the center. We always think that that's what the scripture tells us. And these men were criminals. They deserve this death. We don't know how many others might have been hanging on crosses 
uh, at that time when those three were there. But we do know that it was the, the Jewish Sabbath was drawing close. The Jewish Sabbath would have begun on, at sundown on Friday. And it would have gone to sundown on Saturday. A 24-hour period of rest and, and, and peace and restoration and drawing close to God. All, all the things that God intended the Sabbath to be for his people. And so the Sabbath was approaching and Jewish law declared that a man could not be hanging on a cross uh, during the Sabbath. Wasn't that nice of them to put that little disclaimer in there? And so they, they said, we've got to hurry this up. We've got to hasten it. So the, the soldiers came along with a, with a billy club or a baseball bat or whatever they had. And they, they looked and this guy's still breathing. Well, we'll take care of that. Whack. And they would break, they'd break the bones in your legs. Hanging on that cross, it's already difficult enough. You've got spikes through your wrists and your hands and you can't move. And the, the fowls of the air have already discovered you and they're pecking you and they're working on your eyes. The insects are burrowing into your, uh, the orifices of your face and orifices of your body. It's a horrific way to, to die. And they're hanging there suspended between heaven and earth. And now to hasten their death, they come along and smack them in the legs and break their bones. There's a little seat on the cross. I don't know if you've ever, know, ever known that or not. It's not very large, but they, it's just large enough to rest for just a few seconds as you are suspended there. And the way that you would breathe when you're on a cross is you would push yourself up with your legs and you would gasp, opening your lungs, and you would gasp for air, and then the weight of your body would pull you back down. The longer you hang, the further you begin to drop but your feet were nailed also, and there's no way to get your feet loose. And so you would push yourself up, and then maybe you'd rest a little bit, and then you'd push yourself up. And so to stop that process, they would break their legs, smash the legs, splinter the bones. Now they, have not, they don't have the strength. They're in such agony, they can't even push themselves up. And subsequently, they would suffocate. <clears throat> Asphyxiation would be the cause of most deaths on the cross. So they did that to those men on either side of Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they were just about to smack one of his legs. One of the fellows said to the other one, he said, wait, whoa, hold on. I think this guy's already dead. He's already, he died before these other fellows. I think he's already dead. And so, and so they looked and, and they said, well, perhaps you're right. So he took a spear and he reached with the spear. And he, he lanced the side of Jesus between those ribs. Well, it'll be over here on this side the, the side where your heart is, he, he, he lanced that area and he knew exactly how to do it. He'd done it hundreds of times. And he poked Jesus with a spear and it went through until it punctured the sack around his heart. And when the sack around the heart was punctured, out flowed water and blood, John records in his gospel, an indication that his heart had literally ruptured. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus died of a broken heart. <laughs> he bore the sin and the shame, humiliation, excruciating pain. He bore it at Calvary. He allowed himself to be crucified, allowed himself to die a sinner's death, a convict's, a criminal's death, a death reserved for rapists and murderers and those kinds of people. Here's Jesus, the spotless lamb. His side has been riveted now and water and blood is flowing out indicating he was very much dead. So these men took Jesus down off the cross and they would pull the nails, the spikes, 
I've got some, I'll bring them and show them maybe in a couple weeks, but the spikes are six to nine inches long. They look like a railroad spike. You ever seen a railroad spike? That's what it looked like. It looked like a railroad spike, a great big head on it. It had to be because it had to carry, hold the weight of a man. And in, in uh, Oriental culture and thought in this day, that the wrist, this part of, the, of your arm was considered part of your hand. So when they said they, they pierced his hands, Rather than a hand like we think of, it was in the wrist, is right here. If you puncture a man here, then ultimately the weight of his body will pull down and it will rip through that flesh and he'll come, up, he'll come down. So to hold him properly, they would, they, would land, they would take the nails and they would drive the nails through this part of his wrist. They tied your arm so you can't move, you can't get out of the way, and you can't do anything about it. One guy's got his knee on your on your uh, chest or on your arm and you're laying on this, on this, this, uh, this cross beam that you've had to carry yourself and, and, and now they lay you down there and they take this spike and they drive it through your wrist. Now, it didn't take much for me to, 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 to push like that and find a painful sensation. The nerves in your wrist, just take a moment, put your thumb on your, on your wrist. Maybe you want to take your thumbnail and Insert, just push. Can you feel that? Ouch. Doesn't take much. But when they drove those nails through, there was no way, to, there was no way you're coming down off that cross. So this whole theory about Jesus swooning and being, you know, just, just knocked out or something and, and he came back, you know, he was revived, he was resuscitated in the tomb is a, is a, is a well, started to say crock, but I, that wouldn't be proper to say that in my sermon. So, but <laughs> But that whole, I'm telling you, there's a major religion that, that they believe that. Why do they believe that? Because they don't believe that Jesus was God. They believe he existed. They talk about him. Talk about some of his teachings. He was a great man. He was very uh, kind and very loving. But he was a man. And he, he uh, you know, that he didn't die on the cross. Uh, he just swooned. And he died later on at some other time. But he was not God. Ladies and gentlemen, we, we believe that Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God, He is God the Son. Hallelujah. He's eternal. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He is our Lord and our Savior, and He rules and He reigns forever and ever. His name is Jesus. Come on, let's give Him praise in this house today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. So the women were so sad on this morning, coming to anoint Jesus as a final act of love, a final act of devotion. Well, we didn't get a chance to, right on Friday evening, right before the, um, right before the, the, the Sabbath began, we didn't get a, get a chance to. They took him down and, 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 and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they anointed him. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But we didn't get our opportunity, so we're going to do that on Sunday morning. They came down that little garden path, and they said, well, you know, we've got the spices, we're ready, but who's going to roll away the stone for us? And all of a sudden, read Mark 16, and now let's go to the fourth verse, would you please? Mark 16 and 4 from the New International Version. But when they looked up, <laughs> hallelujah, how important is it to look up? 
I mean, you can watch that garden path and you can feel sorry for yourself and you can shuffle down like that through life and you can miss everything that God has for you. But look up. Look up. Your redemption draws nigh. Look up. God's got blessing for you. Look up. This trial you're walking through, this difficult time, it didn't come to stay. It's come to pass. And you're going to go through it in Jesus' name. You will get through it. It may not be painless. It may not be quick. But I'll tell you something. You use this trial. You use this hardship. You use this bit of suffering that you're experiencing right now. Don't waste a good crisis. Let this thing draw you to God. Let this thing bring you to a place of prayer and fasting and commitment like you've never known before. Draw close to the Lord and he will draw close to you. In this time of trial and testing, God will bring you through. He will bring you through with victory. He'll bring you through refined as gold in the fire. Hallelujah, 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 and amen. But when they looked up, I'll tell you what, that thing just exploded in me this week as I was preparing this message and reading through that verse. <laughs> but when they looked, they weren't looking up. They weren't in expectation of an empty tomb. Jesus had told them and told them and told them and told them, I know. He's told us and told us and told us and told us. <laughs> and we, dis we disobey. We don't listen. We, we, we don't pay attention. We don't really even believe that's going to happen. Our faith sometimes is not even in him. Our faith is in our own ability. Come on, are you listening to me? Our faith is in what someone else says to us. Our faith is in someone else's doctrine. Be careful. Our faith is in the pastor. Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> Men will let you down. I will let you down. There you go. If I've not offended you already, come up to me after service and I'll personally offend you. <laughs> I don't mind. It. I'm a non-discriminatory offender. I'll offend you. If I haven't stepped on your toes yet, come on up. I'll get you. <laughs> but our faith has got to be in the Lord Jesus. Our confidence has to be in God and what he can do for us. Can you say Amen. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. They didn't expect that. They did not expect that. So the next thing they do is they entered the tomb. Yeah. When you see the stone gone in the hole in the, in the, in the, in the, the cave in the wall there, you don't just stand outside, you go in there. And they went in, and when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Now, if you read all of the gospel accounts, you'll see that they vary somewhat. One of the gospel accounts talks about two angelic beings. This one talks about one. doesn't mean that they're contradicting one another. It's just the way that these uh, authors wrote and what they saw and what they expressed. Uh, but we do know these are angelic beings. We do know that an angel of the Lord is who, is who rolled the stone away. And when the angel appeared like lightning out of the sky, his countenance was so bright you could not bear it. And the soldiers who saw that angel, and, and when he appeared to them, they fell down, the Bible says, as dead men. <laughs> they fell down as dead men. Now, they weren't dead, but they were as dead men. They got up off the ground. I thought they probably dusted themselves and said, man, are we in trouble now? We're not supposed to be sleeping on the job. We're not supposed to be, we're supposed to keep watch. And we went down, all of us, did you just, did you just pass out? Yeah, I did. I'm, I'm just coming around. Well, look over here. 
Here's, here's Julius. He's still down. Hey, dude, wake up. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. And he wakes up and what's going on? Well, I don't know, but if you look, the stones have been rolled away. <laughs> well, it took all of us to move that stone in the first place. Who moved it? And somehow, some, for some reason, those guys were gone. By the time the women arrived at the tomb, there was no one there but this angelic uh, creature, this angelic being, and he was inside the tomb. They saw him as a young man. Mark, Mark records they saw him as a young man dressed in a white robe. That would have been the way that they told it to the disciples when they came back and told them what they saw. Here's what he said in verse number six. Don't be alarmed. Almost every time an angel appears to someone in the scripture, they will say something like that. Don't be alarmed. Why is that? Because your tendency is to be alarmed. Your tendency when you see this guy is to just panic. Your tendency, in some instances, they would fall down and begin to worship this angelic being, he would say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. I'm just like you. We, we worship Jesus. Don't be worshiping angels. Listen, we, we need to, sometimes we need a little, a little uh, primer, uh, reminder, a refreshing course on angels, okay? If you, need to, if you want to hear some things about angels, come and talk to me. I'll be glad to tell you all I know about angels. Uh, I don't know a whole lot, but I know a little bit. I know that angels, that humans do not become angels when they die. <clears throat> You don't get your angel wings. I know that sounds beautiful and poetic and romantic and, and it ministers to our soul or whatever when we say something like that. But humans cannot grow angel wings. They cannot become angels. Angels are a separate order, creative order that God has created to be ministers to those of us who are the heirs of salvation. Listen, don't lower yourself. Don't lower your thoughts by saying, I'm going to be an angel someday. No, no, no. The angels are, are here to serve you and I. The angels are here to carry out the bidding and the will of the Father God. Angels are incredibly powerful. In the Old Testament, one angel killed 185,000 Midianites in one night. One angel. One angel. The book of Revelation records that one angel is going to take a chain in one hand. And with one hand, he's going to bind Satan, Lucifer. Slewfoot. He's going to wrap him in chains. He's going to toss him into the bottomless pit. Angels are incredibly important, uh, powerful. We don't have any instance in the scripture where angels are ever referred to as female. They are all sexual. In other words, they're not uh, able to reproduce. They're not able to, they're not like us in that fashion. Uh, it, but however, they're always referred to in the, in the male uh, uh, gender. They're always referred to as men. We have a few of them who've been named through the Bible, through Bible times, Michael, uh, Gabriel, Lucifer. We do know those names. We do know that they have orders. They have uh, uh, archangels and, 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 and another order of angels. And so there's some sort of order that God has put them in like a, like a mighty army. We don't know the number of angels. We, we can't count the number. We know that there's a, a mighty multitude of, the, of angels that appeared in the sky when, when one angel, Gabriel, was announcing to the shepherds that the Christ had been born. You remember that? The angel appeared to the end. I mean, it's total darkness out there. Maybe they got a little campfire going. I don't know, but it's dark. There's no electricity. There are no lights anywhere to be seen. It's extremely dark. And all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And suddenly, and suddenly, this heavenly host appeared. Oh my goodness, how many millions and millions and millions of angels has God created? I don't know. Is he still creating angels? I don't know. It could be. I don't, I don't really know about that. I'll ask him one of these days. When we get there, maybe he'll give me an answer. 
Maybe it won't matter by the time we get there. I don't know. But we, we do know that an angel was involved in the resurrection of Jesus. An angel rolled the stone away. Not so that Jesus could come out. He rolled the stone away so we could go in and we could acknowledge and we could witness and we could testify to the fact the tomb is empty. There's nobody in that tomb. They've never claimed that there's anybody in that tomb. They've never found a, a body or remains or bones or anything in 2,000 years and said, this is Jesus. You can't do it because he rose from the dead and he lives forevermore and he's currently at the right hand of the Father where he lives to make intercession for you and I. Can you say amen to that? So the angel said, you're looking for Jesus, verse 6. Jesus the Nazarene, that's who you're looking for, who was crucified. But he has risen. He is not here. Now you don't raise if you were just swooning and just knocked out or unconscious. He rose because he was dead. It's important that we understand that he was dead. It's important that we realize and agree to the fact that he died he died for the, man, for the sins of mankind, but he rose again. See the place where they laid him. He is risen, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples, and by the way, tell Peter, because Peter's feeling pretty low about this time. Peter's thinking he ain't even one of the disciples anymore. He rejected Jesus on three different occasions. <clears throat> and so go tell the disciples, look in that text. You can see that? And Peter. Tell them, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. So <clears throat> the key out of that verse is come and see, then go and tell. Come and see that he's risen, and then go and tell the world. Go and tell the disciples. And so in the, in the, the Gospel of Luke, he records the words of the angel to the women in uh, Luke 24 and 5, and he says it like this. Why do you seek the living one, the Amplified says living one, among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Why are you looking in a cemetery for the author of life, the one who's very much alive? He's not here. He's risen. So when Jesus was crucified... Friday evening, he was pronounced dead. And loving hands lowered him from the cross. You remember when he died, uh, the skies grew black in the middle of the day. You remember when he died, the earth began to shake and quake and split and rupture. You remember that when he died, the, the veil in the temple was torn. You remember? From top to bottom, it was torn. Humans could not tear the veil, but God tore the veil as an indication that now that Christ has died for you, you can enter into the presence of God through Jesus. You don't have to have a veil and a priest and a laver and, a, and, and golden candlesticks and all those things that are beautiful and used as forms of worship under the old covenant. There's a new covenant that is now being instituted by the blood of the lamb whose name is Jesus. So when he was crucified, he was pronounced dead. Low, loving hands lowered him from the cross. I would imagine that the soldiers had a rope on that crossbeam and they disconnected the crossbeam from the stipe. You see, it was really different than this cross. This is a, 
I believe you call this a Latin cross, but the cross Jesus would have been crucified on was a stipe. It was a, it was a piece of wood like a post. It came out of the ground maybe eight or ten feet in the air. And the, uh, the, the criminal or the condemned would carry the patibulum, which is a cross bar, okay, a cross beam, 75 to 125 pounds in weight, rugged, rough timber. Nobody sanded it before you got on it, trust me. And they would tie a man's arms to that cross beam across his shoulders. And so after the beating and the whipping that Jesus endured, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you that when they whipped you, uh, they whipped you within an inch of your life. That phrase, that expression came from whipping. You, you know, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to beat you to an inch of your life. You ever heard that little expression? Well, it means when a man's knees are, with, are within an inch of the ground, they stop. Beat him and they beat him and they beat him. When your knees are an inch from the ground, we're just about to touch the ground, they'll stop. They don't want to kill you at the whipping. They want to bring you as close as possible to death so that the crucifixion doesn't take long. I mean, after all, they've got things to do. They need to get to dinner and stuff. And so we don't want you hanging on that cross for very long. We want you to get up there and die. So they, they bring you almost to death, and then they would take that patibulum, that cross beam, put it over Jesus' shoulders, tie him to it, and force him to walk through the streets of Jerusalem. People were shouting and cursing and throwing rocks and spitting on him. It was horrible. It was horrible. The soldiers were whipping him every time he would stop, every time he would slow down. And you'll remember that he fell on one occasion and a man by the name of Simon, the Cyrene, uh, he, he took that cross beam and he carried it for Jesus. And uh, the best I can tell, Simon was, Simon was black from the, the, the area that he came. And so tradition teaches us that. And so when he put that cross beam on his shoulders, I remember when I saw the, the Passion of the Christ movie, I remember the man who took that cross beam, when he did so, he got the blood of Jesus on his face and on his shoulders and on his head because he was carrying that cross beam. And the blood would have come from Jesus to the, to the cross beam, to the man's body. And he would have... Carried that he helped carry that patibulum, that cross beam up there. And so when they, when they nailed your hands, your, your wrists, when they nailed your wrists to the cross beam, then they would take the cross beam, I'm assuming with a rope, and they would pull the man on that cross beam up, 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 up to your feet, no longer touch the ground. Up, 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 and then they would attach the cross beam to the stipe. So the cross would look similar to that. That's what the cross of Jesus probably looked like. Now this is, this is what you and I are accustomed to. This is what we relate to. There's certainly nothing wrong with, with that. Uh, but remember, it's, 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 as beautiful as it is to us as believers, it's an instrument of torture and death. Sort of like, why would you hang a guillotine symbol around your neck? Why, you know, why, why would you put a picture of a, of a gas chamber on your wall in your house? We think, oh, how horrible. But yet we use the cross to decorate with. We use the cross everywhere. And, and that's okay because we're believers. We know that he's not on the cross. Notice this, there's a difference between a cross and a crucifix. A crucifix would still have a body on that cross. And there's certain religions that still have Jesus on the cross. But ladies and gentlemen, he's not on the cross. He ain't even in the grave. He rose from the dead. 
And that's the cornerstone of our faith. That's why we need to know it. That's why we need to be firm in it. That's why we need to have it in our spirit. That's why we need to acknowledge this is what Jesus did. And he did it for us. Hallelujah. I'm going to preach myself happy before this is over today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. So when he was pronounced dead, they would have unhinged the cross beam from the stipe. They would have lowered it, the weight of Jesus down. Maybe it took a couple of men, one on each side. I don't, I don't know, but, but I do know that when he got to the ground, loving hands were there. His, his mother Mary was there. Now, we don't know, this is strictly speculation on my part. The Bible doesn't teach this, but I like to think that since Mary was there, she asked for permission to hold him one more time. You moms can relate to what I'm about to say. She took her little boy. He wasn't white and pure skin like he was when she first gave birth to him. Now he was bloodied and beaten Isaiah said that his visage was marred. Visage was marred. In other words, you couldn't, you couldn't even you couldn't make out what he looked like. You couldn't tell that that was Jesus. So bloodied and beaten. So cruelly treated. And I can just imagine that mother at the base of the cross. She'd watched the whole thing. She'd been there. She watched him die. You may say, well, you know, we, we look back 2,000 years and we... We're kind of insulated against the, the pathos, the emotion of all that. Let me tell you something. She was there, and that was her boy. And she knew he had never cursed. He'd never stolen. He'd never been rebellious against her or his foster father, Joseph. He'd never cheated anybody on the job. He'd only taught the gospel, the, the king, the, the gospel of the kingdom. He had only healed the sick. He had only cast out demons. Only, he had only raised the dead. She knew his, his character. She knew his testimony. She knew what he was made of. She knew the anointing that was upon his life. But now he was dead. <laughs> she had to have had some kind of faith in God to allow, to allow that to happen and not totally give up. Some of them had given up. The male, the male uh, uh, disciples were hidden. They, they, had, they had sequestered themselves. They were quarantined. <laughs> they got behind as many doors as they could and they stayed as quiet as they could because if Rome had crucified their leader, Rome might be after them next. They were waiting for the, the knock on the door, Daniel, of the centurion and the rough hands of the, of the executioners dragging them off to be crucified. So they were scared. They were frightened. They had lost their faith. They did not know what had just happened? All they knew was they, they saw him dead. He's dead. And that mother, I like to think about that mother at the foot of the cross. I like to think about her taking her son's head in her lap and her arms. Huh. Maybe tenderly wiping some of the blood away. Maybe kissing his, little, his forehead. I, I don't, you know, this is all speculation. They may not have even let her close to him. I don't know. You see, Jesus was altogether God, but he was altogether man. He was divinity wrapped in a cloak of humanity. Pastor, was he half man, half God? No, he wasn't half anything. He was altogether man, altogether God. But in his humanity, 
we see him bearing your shame and your sin at the cross. In his humanity, that's what those disciples at the foot of the cross would have bore witness to, mostly women. John, we know John was there because Jesus assigned uh, caretaking of his mother to John. John was so close to the family, he was like, he was like a cousin. He wasn't an actual cousin, but John the Baptist was a cousin. I'm talking about John the, the apostle who became John the revelator and John the gospel writer. And he, he, he called himself the, the one that, whom Jesus loved. He wouldn't even identify himself in his own gospel. He was so humble. I like one passage I was reading it this week where, where when, the, the, when the women came from the tomb and they told the disciples that Jesus was risen, Peter and John ran to the tomb. And so John, in his account, he's, he's relating it. And he says, the other disciple got there first. <laughs> he didn't say, I, John, got there first. But you can read between the lines. It was him and Peter. And he outran Peter to get there. <laughs> I don't know exactly what that means. But he mentioned he was the first one in there. And so, and so the disciples that were at his feet, they saw him crucified. They saw him pronounced dead. They may have seen his mother at the foot of the cross go through what I just explained to you. And you know, the only, the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars on Jesus' hands and feet. The only man-made thing, think about it. The only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars that were produced on his hands and his feet and in his side. Remember when he appeared to the disciples? I better, boy, I better wrap this up. I'm going to preach all day long. Man, man, man. Close my Bible and put it down. You remember when Jesus appeared to 11 disciples after his resurrection. Oh, by the way, from the time of his resurrection to the time of his ascension was a period of 40 days. 40 is a number of change, a number of testing, and so forth in the Bible. When you see 40, 40 used a lot. And for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus walked around in his glorified body. He, you could sit down and eat with him. He could eat with that body, but he could also here in a room that had doors and windows locked. <laughs> I don't understand how he did that, but he did it in this glorified body. It's the same kind of body that we're going to have. We're going to have a body like Jesus' body. At the moment of the rapture, we shall be changed. I said, we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Pastor, how fast is the twinkling of an eye? Well, I don't know. Some have said, as long as it, the, the, the time it takes for your, your brain to register what your eye just looked at. Let me give you a color. Right, let me give you a color. All right, this is kind of a kind of a purple draped, kind of a wine colored drape. I guess it is purple. Everybody see that? Okay. However long it took your brain to tell you what color that was, that was the twinkling of your eye. <laughs> and Jesus is coming back in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. The trumpet shall sound because we're going to be changed. This mortal is going to put on immortality. This corruptible flesh is going to become incorruptible. Beloved, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And we're going to be like Jesus. So he appears, I'm going to get to this story and wrap it up. He appears to 11 disciples. Thomas is not there. And uh, he appeared uh, in those, that 40-day period, he appeared to over five, 515 people saw Jesus alive. 515 people are eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. 515 people. Thomas didn't see him the first time, but the second time Jesus appeared, 
Thomas had told him, he said, wait a minute, that wasn't Jesus. I don't know who you guys saw, but I don't believe that was him. I'm not going to believe until I can put my hand in his sight and touch the nails, scars. I'm not going to believe until I can do that. So the next time Jesus appeared to them and Thomas was with him, guess what Jesus allowed Thomas to do? He allowed him to touch his hands and his feet and his side. And he fell down on his knees, the Bible says, and he said, my Lord and my God, you really are divine. You really are the son of God. You really are God the son Here's what Jesus told Thomas, and I'll close with this. He said, Thomas, you believe because you have seen. But he said, blessed are those. There is a blessing upon those who have not seen but yet believe. We've not seen him, but yet we believe. I've never heard his voice audibly, but yet I believe. I've believed in him since I was a little bitty boy. I believed in him because my mom and my dad believed in him. And they taught me to believe in him. And my local church taught me to believe in him. My daddy pastor taught me to believe in him. Until there came a time when I got out of the house and I married and, and I began to have children. And I taught my children to believe in him. And now my children are teaching their children to believe in him.